Hey, everybody, this is Pastor Luke McDonald, and this is the Good News in the Neighborhood podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. You're going to find two things in this feed in this season. You're going to find Sunday sermons from our church in Palatine, Illinois, and you're going to find an occasional little piece of content that is towards our initiative to try to help our church read the Bible more regularly. It's called Good With Our Bibles. We're trying to read the Bible regularly, and we're trying to interpret it accurately. If that's what you're going to find in this feed. We are a multi-ethnic Bible-teaching life-giving church. This is our little theme song that you're hearing in the background. And uh, it helps us, anything you do, rating the podcast, sharing it, all that stuff helps the word get out. We're not trying to build the name of a church. We're trying to build the name of Jesus in our little local community. And if you found this, I hope it's useful to you. Thank you. Let's listen now. I'm excited to preach to you today. I want to, we're going to complete the study that we've been on this spring through the book of Judges. If you have a Bible, I hope you'll turn there. We're going to look at the last four chapters of the book of Judges today. I've been in church my whole life. Uh, like I've been in church more times than there have been Sundays in my life kind of thing. I've never heard a message on these chapters. There's some dark and confusing and interesting things that you're going to find here, but I think that you're going to find it really useful. The message today is about how Christian culture falls apart and what I can do about it. So there's a, a theme that's out there all over the place in our world right now that is kind of some version of things aren't as good as they used to be which I feel this about some things. You ever go to like a restaurant and you're like, I remember this place used to be good and now it's not anymore. Has anyone ever had that experience? Are you like, are you institutions, we, it used to be better. It used to be more, it used to be something and now it isn't quite as much anymore. Christians for sure have this experience, right? Of being like the world is going to hell in a handbasket and there can be this very negative kind of narrative all the time that is, Things were better some over place over here in the past, and now they're really bad. And so we're just kind of like these helpless victims being carried along like zombies towards an unfair end. And we can pull those two things apart, I think, and that's what we're going to do today. Yes, the world is getting dark, but we are not helpless victims of the world. We are more than conquerors through God who loves us. Jesus Christ did not place us on this planet for this time in history to be flailing or falling or miserable or unhappy. He placed us here because he has a purpose for us. And so we can understand that the world around us is failing in a lot of ways, but we're not victims of it. That's what I came to preach to you about today. If you're ready, say ready. So this is the book of Judges. We've been studying it for quite a while here. This is the cycle that we've been learning about. I'll put it on the screen. This may be the last time that you see it. This is the book of Judges, and it happens over and over and over and over that the people fall into sin. The sin brings about oppression. The oppression that the people fall into draws their hearts eventually towards repentance. That repentance brings about God's deliverance, which brings about a time of peace, and eventually people get a little too happy with the peace, I guess. And so they fall back into sin again. We've been studying that for a few months now. I think you probably understand it. We see four stories in Judges 17, 18, 19, and 20 that show this pattern. But the author shifts after Samson, which we finished studying last week, towards a broader look at what is happening in the nation of Israel during the time of the Judges. I want to give you these stories in snapshots, and then we're going to look at them carefully. And you're going to see three themes that I think are going to be helpful to you about how the culture around us falls apart and what we can do about it. So first in Judges 17, we find the story of this guy Micah. And what happens in this story is that Micah steals some of his mother's wealth, like she has a bunch of silver and he just takes it. Uh, then he hears her curse the person who did it, so he gives it back. 
And, and then his mother, naturally, this is the part where it starts to get confusing, takes the silver when he gives it back. So like, you know, your son takes some money out of your wallet, then he gives it back. And she's like, oh, you know what I'll do? I'll make this into an idol that we can all worship, of course. And so then what happens is this guy, Micah, he hires like a personal priest. He's like, hey, we got this idol now, so maybe we can, we don't have to go over to Jerusalem or worship God like any way that we've known before. We'll just have like our little thing here and we'll worship this idol that my mom made. That's Judges 17. Uh, Judges 18 is that there's this tribe, Dan. They're one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're trying to get themselves established in permanent land. They're trying to get off of rental into home ownership. And they kidnap the priest and the idol that was talked about in Judges 17, and they kept it with them after that to worship for generations. Confusing. Then it really gets dark. Judges chapter 19, this is the one that would come with, you ever like watch a TV show that has that thing that comes across the screen? This is like maybe not suitable for young audiences, you know, or whatever, like one of those. This is that chapter for sure. There's this other priest, and what the, this priest does is uh, he has a concubine that's like a non-wife sexual partner, and he, uh, the girl runs away, which I guess, I mean, that's kind of a nasty title name. It's like, what is our relationship? I think of you as my concubine. Is maybe how it went? I don't know. But she runs away to a distant place, and the priest tracks her down and gets her to agree to come home with him. While they're on their way home, uh, they stop for the night, and a group of men show up at the door saying, hey, priest, come on out. Let's party. We'd like to know you. It's, it's a, when you see that word in the Bible, there's a lot contained in that word when it's used in that context. Like, come on, fella. Come on outside. Let's have a good time. And horribly and terribly enough... The guy's like, no, I'm not, no, I'm not into all that, but you, you can have my concubine. Do whatever you want with her. Everybody say gross. And say wrong. Everyone say wrong. And his concubine is given to the men, and she is brutally raped and eventually dies. In the next chapter, uh, the priest, trying to create a scene or a mob, he cuts the woman's body in pieces and sends them with different messengers all over the country. When people kind of hear this is one of those like, uh, shocking things on the news, it creates a mob, and this angry mob gathers warriors to destroy whoever committed this crime. When the mob gets together, the priest tells a version of the story where he conveniently leaves out what he did that was wrong. He kind of leaves that part out. And so then the mob ends up, they create an army, they fight an overmatched single tribe of Benjamin. Instead of punishing the exact people who did the wrong thing, they punish a whole group of people for the wrong thing, and... Many people die, and the book of Judges ends back where it started, the people doing what's right in their own eyes. That is at the beginning of the book, and it is at the end of the book. It's said repeatedly over and over. It says that in those days, next slide, there was no king in Israel. People did what was right in their own eyes. That's the theme. The theme, you remember when you used to study like a book or something in high school English and they would beat you over the head to like find the theme? Judges is so kind to us because it tells us the theme at the beginning, it tells us the theme at the end, and it tells us the theme over and over. In the, put that verse back up. In that day, there was no king in Israel. The people did what was right in their own eyes. It sounds like the world, not just of the end of the book of Judges, it sounds like the world that we're living in, doesn't it? Can I get a witness? The people look everywhere and they're like, I'm not listening to the government. I'm not listening to what the court said. I'm not listening to what the teacher said or what the speed limit says. That, well, that, no, it's me. But I'm not, listening to what, I'm not listening to what those rules are. I'm not listening to what that thing is. I'm not following that standard. I'm not following that. No, no, I'm going to do what makes sense to me. I'm going to do what feels right to me. I'm going to operate in a way that makes sense to me. That's where things start to fall apart. What you see, I guess, this is the way I would summarize that. What that means 
is that the people of Israel, and many of us now, want the benefits of a safe and prosperous kingdom without the authority of a king. So we want like everything that comes with having, yeah, it's safe and things make sense and I like the way that it works, but I don't wanna have to like follow any of the rules to keep it that way. So I wanna show you now in these stories uh, a little bit more specifically now that you kind of get the lay of the land. Judges 17, there's a man of the hill country of Ephraim. I'm just reading a few verses here at the beginning of chapter 17 if you're there. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. You already know from these two verses that this is an unusual thing that happened because in my experience, kids never admit to taking something they weren't supposed to on the first time they're asked about it. Uh, did you eat the cookies? No. Did you? It's amazing, you know, it's like we had this entire box of Captain Crunch and then like 24 hours later, all of it was gone and conveniently nobody ate any of it. How does that happen? It's just amazing, how did that happen, you know? So it says that he felt convicted, so he gave the money back to his mother, verse 4. And his mother took 200 pieces of the silver, she gave it to a silversmith, and they made a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. And Micah said to him, verse 10, stay with me, be to me a father and a priest, I will give to you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living, and Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and he was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. All right, so what's happening here? We see there in that last verse, just put that back for a second, what's happening, because the Bible isn't just a collective of random words, it's there for, to teach us something for a purpose. When he says that I know the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest, he's saying, I can have my own way of worshiping, and I can have God's way at the same time. He's saying I can do it the world's way, and I can do it God's way at the same time. He's describing something called syncretism, and syncretism destroys our faith's uniqueness. That's the first thing. I'm going to give you three that are about this Christian culture that we're part of and how it falls apart and what I can do about it, and the first one is this. Syncretism destroys our faith's uniqueness. What does that word mean? It's a, syncretism is a fusion of diverse beliefs, cultures, and philosophies that create a new blended system or worldview. Syncretism is, I'm like a little bit of this, and I'm a little bit of this, and I'm a little bit of this. It's uh, people who try to bring, and you see this all over in the world today, a bunch of ideas together rather than believe in one particular belief system. A lot of people live like this. It's, uh, in the second century, it was called Gnosticism. In the 19th century, it was fused Christian and Cuban spiritism and together into something called Santeria. We do it in our country today, too. Syncretism is, I'm going to have some of God's ideas, but I'm going to throw in some of my ideas, too. And it destroys our faith's uniqueness. You see it in our world in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's lots of people here who believe in Jesus and also believe in materialism, right? So, yeah, for sure, life is about Jesus came to save me from my sin. Also, I can only be happy if I have more stuff. That's a fusing of America and faith, right? It, you see it in uh, the gospel. A lot of people are into this today, the gospel of wellness, which is this kind of like, um, yes, I believe in Jesus, but also like I can't be happy unless I have a young-looking body and I'm going to spend every dime I ever had to keep it looking young. Nothing wrong with that, you know, inherently, but... When you fuse those two things together, it becomes this combination where all of a sudden it isn't biblical Christianity anymore, it's 
Do you see what I'm saying? Two things put together. For sure, you see it lots of places um, today. There's people that are like, you can even see this all over the place on the internet. People talk about, yeah, my, I believe in Jesus and therapy. Well, going to a counselor who can help you unpack the things that you've gone through or the things that are going on in your life can be a wonderful gift. But to even say that like that as though those two things are even. So my belief system is kind of like half Jesus and half what some person who went to some school, who read some book, who knows what they ate this morning tells me. That's my belief system put together. That is a path to something very bad. I would describe what most people, candidly, who are listening to me right now and who live in our area believe in is something, you may have never heard this term before, but it is something called uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. And moralistic therapeutic deism is the most common religion that people who say they're Christians believe in today, and it's not biblical faith. I want to just teach you a little bit. I know we're in the deep end this morning, but I want to teach you a little bit about this. I think it's helpful to you. So let me show you. On the, on the left side, right side, you can just put, uh, this is what moralistic therapeutic deism believes in. Yeah, leave it right there. There's a higher power and a God who watches over human life, so it's not an atheism. It's a belief that, like, yeah, yeah, there's a God out there. And God wants people to be good and kind and fair. And the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good. And God is minimally involved in daily life. And here's the key. Good people go to heaven when they die. Good people go to heaven when they die. If you're good, you go to heaven when you die. You just need to focus on being good. And being good means being nice and paying you know, your taxes and then mowing your lawn and being good. Good, good people go to heaven. This is not biblical faith. It's like most perversions. It sounds right enough that you have to pay careful attention. It's just twisted a little bit. Let me put it on the other side, what real biblical faith is. There's not just a higher power out there that kind of is somewhere floating. There is a God. There is one God, and he rules the world. God doesn't just want us to be good or kind. God wants us to be holy, and that is unique to all other world religions. Uh, the central goal of life is to know God and to love and serve him. This is biblical faith. God is not minimally involved. God is intimately involved in my daily life. And good people don't go to heaven when they die. Saved people go to heaven when they die. Understand this. Most people that you meet on a day-to-day -day basis who say that they are Christians believe in what is on the left side of the screen more than they do what is on the right side of the screen. They believe in this sort of mixture of worldly ideas. And this is all the way back to the book of Judges now. The same thing is happening He's, gonna, he's saying, I'm going to have the faith of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I'm also going to have like idol worship like my Canaanite neighbors. I'm going to have this, but I'm also going to have this. I'm going to have this, but I'm also going to have this. When too many people who say they're people of faith live like that, our faith's uniqueness is destroyed, and all of a sudden we are no different from the people in any other place believing any other book, and people start to think that there's more than one way to heaven, and we're all just the same if we believe it intensely enough, and none of these things are true, dear friends. We must believe not in the American version of our faith, but in the biblical faith that's been handed down to us once and for all. All right, that's the first part. Here's the second part. Now we're in Judges 19. I told you this story a second ago. This one goes a little quicker. There, uh, there was no king in Israel in those days, that's the first verse. That's his way of reminding you. Remember, this is how, why things are messed up. It's because there's no king in Israel in those days. There was a certain Levite. He was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country, and he took himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. I told you what that means. That means he wasn't willing to, like, put a ring on her finger, but he wanted to sleep with her. 
And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house. She ran back to dad's house because things weren't working out. And she was there four months. Then her husband, it's weird, he calls him a husband, even though it was a concubine before. I don't know why that is. But he arose and went after her, and he kind of spoke sweetly to her to bring her back. You know that tone of voice that you get when you're in a fight with your partner and you're trying to, like, work things out? I don't know if you have this, Steve. Maybe you got, you know, like that tone of voice that you put on to try to kind of work things out. Hey, I'm, hey, I'm, hey, I'm sorry. Hey, you know. Your voice kind of rises up. Anybody willing to admit you've got, yeah? Anybody? Okay. Not a lot of honesty in church today. I, I understand. <laughs> Kristen's out of town today at a wedding, so I, I'm feeling a little more honest, maybe. Uh, he spoke kindly to her, and they, she's like, all right, you know what, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll come back. So they go on this journey, and they're kind of midway back on their journey, and there's this old man who meets them when they're on their journey and says, hey, don't worry about it. Come on. You can stay with me. Don't, like, spend your night sleeping in the square of the town. Don't sleep in the park. Come on. You can stay with me. And so it says then in verse 22, they were making their hearts merry. That's the Bible's way of saying they had a couple drinks. And behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, and they were beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring that other dude out who came into the house. We want to know him. Just imagine the darkness of the culture where like a new person comes to town. Their first thought is, what can we do to exploit this person sexually? And... The man, the master of the house, went out to them. He said, no, my brothers, don't do this. This, is, this guy came to my house. He's my guest. Don't do this vile thing. Behold, he says, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. He says right out loud, violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, don't do this outrageous thing. Everybody say sick. sick. But the men would not listen to him. So the man trying to help out the old man, he seizes his concubine, he makes her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. You may have lost it because I know we're going quick and there's a lot here. This man was a, a priest or a Levite. He was a, woman, a man of faith. And this is how he allowed his woman to be treated. And unfortunately, whenever we see the devaluing of women, it destroys our faith's witness. A lot of the reason that people are like out on the faith thing that we're singing about and believing in this morning is they see the same messed up, wrong way of treating people in here that they see out there. They're like, you told me that you're what? You're loving, you're whatever, but it's no different in there. And you see it show up in all kinds of different places that the it's almost like we understand that in the world, women are unfortunately often used for their sexuality, used for their willingness to serve, used for their willingness to give and take advantage of. But when we see it in the place that's supposed to be the place representing God, that hits in a different place. It burns in a different way. It hurts in a more significant way. The biblical vision of manhood is a, as a sacrificial leader. But unfortunately, uh, the modern version of manhood is a selfish boy. Our culture loves people with the age and body of a man who still figure out a way to act like a little boy. It's seen as being good. It's even idolized in some places and ways. Culture devalues, our culture devalues women by reducing them to a sexual body available for male pleasure. This is evil, and it's dark, 
and it happens in the 2020s, and it's been happening since the book of Judges and even before, and it is wrong, but sometimes because we feel a little squeamy or squeamish or squirmish about it, we don't want to talk about it, and we're here in the Bible today, so I want to just take a second and say the culture devalues women by normalizing sex without commitment. When sex without commitment is allowed in the culture, all of the cost that comes with that, almost inevitably, almost all the cost, accrues to the woman, not to the man. Our culture devalues women by accepting pornography and its norms as ideal. Culture tells you that what you see in that screen is what a woman is supposed to act like, and it makes things worse for women. And our culture is out there being like, while God in heaven weeps at that reality. Uh, Our culture devalues women candidly by pretending that men can be women. And our culture devalues women by demeaning traditional roles and values. Uh, It happens often to me in the church where a woman will say, why is it like uh, when I was working out there in corporate world or I was great, but now that most of my energy goes to taking care of my kids and my husband and my family and serving the church, I'm not seen as like, valuable anymore. I mean, maybe not even like doing a good job as part of team girl because I'm taking care of my home. Our culture devalues women by demeaning when they fulfill their traditional values and roles. And every family has a different story and every family has to figure out the best way to pull all those pieces together. And we're not a church that's trying to say there's one perfect way to have a family. There's all kinds of ways to live out God's biblical principles, but this is what our culture tells us out there. Uh, Unfortunately, the church is often no better. The church responded over the last few decades to these cultural values by pulling a different group of values together, something that you may know of or may not know of called purity culture, which tends to devalue women by a different way of interpreting the same reductive value of them. This is... uh, a male obsession with virginity and modesty. It's messaging that portrays men as helpless victims of their own biology, as though acting out, and we've got these for the screen, as though acting out in an inappropriate way is somehow there's nothing he can do about it, he can't help it, he's just being a man. And the church also sometimes unfairly devalues women by instead of demeaning traditional roles, by idolizing them. You may have been in a church like this at some time in your life or been part of it where it's like, you know, the really good families are the one where mom doesn't work or the really good families are the ones where like, you know, mom's head of the quilting club or whatever, no offense if you are, but like. And that's what the church often does is takes like the wrong values and culture and then goes the other way with them in just as problematic of a way. Why are we talking about this and why is this Um, important right now. The reason this is important right now is for us, dear friends, all of us together, to be good news in the neighborhood and to raise our children and to be this church and this community the way that we want to be. One of our best opportunities is to be a different, healthier, safer, stronger place for women to be than any other place they can find themselves out there. 
The church needs to be the place where women are seen as being so much more than the way that they look, so much more than the family that they have, so much more than the simple, small, sinful, reductive way that the world often tells them they are supposed to be. That when the church is the best place, then the church thrives. And so we see here what's so wrong and what happens in this story in Judges that I talked about that got us onto this topic is that the woman... It's not about the evil men that take advantage of the woman as much as it is about the men who are supposed to be men of God who allowed the woman to be taken advantage of. That's the real tragedy in sin. There's always going to be evil people out there. There's always going to be evil people out there, but we need to be people that take care of the people around us. I think I've said it. So now to the next part. Uh, so the story continues. I'm still in that same chapter. It says that he entered the house. He took a knife. He took hold of the concubine. He divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. That's literal. And all the people that saw it said, something like this has never happened. It's never been seen in the country, in the day of Israel. Since we came up out of Egypt, we should pay attention. We should take counsel. We should speak. It's like, uh, you know those things that happen so, every so often, like... Um, the video of George Floyd or uh, what happened on January 6th where this thing happens in the culture that it just seems like a wildfire and all of a sudden everybody can't stop talking about it. It rises people's emotions up high, 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 high. That's what's happening here. So all the people of Israel came out. It says and it, about 400,000 men got together and drew the sword and they said, whoever did this, they're going to die. Whoever did this, they're going to die. Whoever did this, they're going to die. It says that they gathered together all as one man. Now, if you've been paying careful attention to the book of Judges, this is crazy because the only time the whole country was unified on anything was not in worshiping the God that they all came from. It was in their anger at these guys over here. So the men of Israel, it says again, verse 17, they got 400,000 men together, and they asked God, what should we do? And the Lord said, go tomorrow. And the men of Israel rather than finding the specific people who committed this heinous crime, destroyed almost every man from the tribe of Benjamin, the men, the beasts, and all the towns that they found, verse 48, it says, they set on fire. It's the last part. The last part is that uh, these cycles of rage and victim destroy our faith's stability. This is the very last part of the book of Judges is the people turning on each other. So we've seen this one part, which is about how our faith becomes destroyed when it becomes some of our faith and gets mixed with other stuff. We've seen this part about how our faith gets destroyed when women are not treated with value the way they should be. And this last part is when we fall into the cycle of rage and victimhood, rage and victimhood, we no longer provide a safe, stable place for people anymore. This is the world that we live in today, right? Is that everywhere you look, people are trying to make you angry about something. Everywhere you look. I mean, I, I, thought, I saw this morning, uh, they got new boxes at the donut place that we get it for Sunday morning, and they're shaped different, and they look different. And I thought, oh, these kids that show up to this morning, it's going to be hell to pay. They don't like change. I mean, if, like, if your kids can't get that like, donut that they like, I mean, I hear them. They're like, did I get here in time? I need the red velvet one, or I'm not going to make it. I'm teasing now, but our world around us all the time is giving us endless opportunities to be angry. 
Our whole media ecosystem is designed around, you should be angry about that. 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 And it gets us into this mentality, even people of faith, where we move from angry thing to angry thing to angry thing. And the problem with that cycle is it portrays human beings created in the image of God as either on my team or on the bad team, either one of the people hurting somebody or one of the people who's a victim. It messes with our heads and it uh, causes us to behave in ways that are different than the way that God desires. I read this, this was helpful to me. As satisfying as it can feel to hear that your foes are irredeemable, stupid, and deviant, remember when you find yourself hating something, someone is making money or winning an election or getting more famous or more powerful, unless a leader is actually teaching you something you didn't know or expanding your worldview and moral outlook, here it is, you are being used. That most often, when our culture is trying to make you angry, you are being used. Our world loves these days to fall into like mass hysteria, being overwhelmed with angst about a particular thing or problem, most of which people had never thought of before. So back to the story that we're telling. This woman is raped and killed, and it's wrong. And the people who did it should pay and should pay a consequence. But what ends up happening is a whole bunch of people that didn't have anything to do with it get hurt, murdered, their homes destroyed because the anger was overwhelming to the people that got angry. That's what's happening. And uh, we're almost done now, and I know it's getting a little warm, but let's just try to be strong here till the finish. This uh, mass hysteria thing happens all the time. I was thinking of some of the ones that I've been through since I was a kid. Does anyone remember, remember when Y2K was like the thing that was going to start? Does anyone remember that? And it was like it was going to be over. It was like you were going to wake up one day and like your computer was going to eat you or whatever. And it was like people were panicking and spending money. And do you remember? Like who, it was like the most intense thing. For all you guys that graduated, it was we were no smarter 20 years ago than we are now. I remember. Uh, does anyone remember the one? I remember this when I was a kid. Um, there was a Pokemon cartoon that people started having seizures when they watched. And it was the same one. Jake, do you remember this one? It was like the thing. It was like for a minute. That was like the really big thing. I was remembering. Um, like 400 years ago, maybe you studied in school the Salem witch trial, where all of a sudden, all these women in one town, we just decided they were all witches and like had to kill them all. It's uh, mass hysteria is what happens when my anger becomes overwhelmed and I see imagined threats everywhere. And our culture wants to tell you all the time that right versus left, pick one. And whichever one you are, all the other ones are bad. Our culture wants men versus women, old versus young, rich versus poor, black versus white versus Hispanic versus Asian. Figure out what team you are on and then all the people on the other team are bad. All the other people are people not to trust. All the other people are people to fight against. Increasingly, our world can only find unity around anger and vengeance. But that's not unity, that's, not, that's carnality. Destroying your opponent, like happens here, is not biblical. If what you're doing isn't redemptive in nature, it's not a biblical consequence. All right. So we need to pay careful attention to what makes us angry and make sure that we're not being used. 
Because unfortunately, often the people of God are known as the ones that get the most irrationally angry. Like, do you know how many times we've boycotted Disney? And what did it ever amount to? And you tell everybody you're boycotting Disney, and then we still see that little picture with your family in front of the Magic Kingdom castle. Like, it's like you, didn't, you didn't even mean it anyway. That was a great mass hysteria. I don't know if you know this. Do you know the one about like how like in the Lion King or Aladdin, you can, if you like flip it upside down, you like secretly look, there's like all these nasty words being smelt, spelled out like in smoke or whatever. I don't know. Bill, you for sure know about all these, all these like... People of faith are often known as the people who get angry about stuff that we can't do anything about. And it just makes everybody out in the world being like, like, I, I don't know, man. Like, I'm just like trying to feed my family and like figure out how to get through the day. And you're over here telling me that like Mickey Mouse is the thing who's destroying all of us. It just makes, I'm just telling you straight, it makes people roll their eyes. Like you guys can't find something else like more real to get worked up about. The, the cycle of anger that culture pushes us in doesn't help doesn't help us be good news to the neighborhood around us. So it gets us back now. We're real close to done now. In those days, there was no king in Israel. This is the very end of the book of Judges. We've made it to the end. Who knows if we'll ever return. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So what's easy to do is to take in a message like this and be like, man, isn't that the worst? All those people out there doing what's right in their own eyes. Don't you just hate all those people out there, all those people that I work with, they're just doing what's right in their own eyes? Don't you hate all those people, like, doing what's right in their own eyes? I mean, I saw those people yesterday like, with the Kentucky Derby hats and walking around down, and it's like, what did they, th- I guess that looks good in their own eyes. It may not look good to me, but I'm, man, I'm just so much smarter than them and so much better. And did you hear about that girl that we go to church with? Did you hear about her? She's getting divorced, and man, can you just believe what she's just living, like, what's right in her own eyes? And she, did you hear about how he spent his money? He's just doing what's right in his own eyes. I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. She, she, I mean, did you see that dress that she wore to the prom, that girl that goes to church? of all things. I mean, she's just doing what's right in her own eyes, and it's so easy to kind of like get all going about everything else all over these other places. And where the real struggle comes and where the real problem comes is how often you and I are doing what's right in my own eyes, your own eyes. As long as we're worked up about how much better we are than everyone else out there, the church gets smaller, weaker, smaller, weaker, and can't even make an impact on the neighborhood around it. So what do I do? Just returning back to some basic things and then we're done. What I do is, uh, one, I choose Jesus as king again. Jesus Christ is the king over everything. His words, his law, his standard, his way. The culture wants us to think that Jesus is out of fashion. No, maybe the way that we live him out is out of fashion, but he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is a good God above all others. So I choose Jesus as king again. I say, I, can't, I don't even know what to do half the time with the choices that I'm facing, but I choose Jesus as king. I choose the Bible again as my authority, and it's binding. That doesn't mean that every person who's telling you what the Bible says is telling you the truth. But what it actually says and what it actually means is the binding authority for my life. And then three, I choose church again as a priority, which is part of it. A lot of us struggle to have spiritual power over the difficult things that we're facing day to day, and we wonder why, and it's because we don't access the maturity and wisdom and blessing of all the wonderful people that we rub shoulders with week by week. We don't get here often enough, and then we wonder why we don't have power. 
so back to where we started, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to be done. Uh, I don't know about you, but I look out at the world often in these days that we're living in, and I just, I like feel like I don't even, it doesn't make sense to me so often, or I feel like I don't fit. Anyone ever feel like that? I look around at the world, and I'm just like, I don't know. Like, I, maybe, I mean, I would never move to Canada, but maybe I should go somewhere. Like, I don't, it just doesn't. And it can be really easy to fall into the trap of kind of being like a helpless victim along with the path. The world's just getting worse and worse, and there's nothing that I can do about it, so I guess just, uh-huh. But what we are doing together, the way that we are living together, the choices that you're making in your marriage, in your family, in your job, with your money, that little bit is the thing that we contribute to the broader sense of what the church can be. And when the church is right, it is the antidote to all the world's problems. That when the church is a place that is unadulteratedly pushing for the pure gospel, it attracts people. And when the church is a place where women are safe and valued and treated with more respect than any other place in our culture, the church grows and expands. And, and when instead of being needlessly angry about all these little things all around us, the church focuses on what really matters and loves its neighbor as itself, the church grows and expands. We are not stuck. Our fate isn't sealed. God is good. He's with us. And we can stand strong because of him. Why don't you stand to your feet? And I'm going to pray. That was our word for today. Lord, I pray that every uh, word that was spoken that was useful today from your word would resonate in our ears and our minds. I pray that whatever was useless would fall to the ground, never to be thought of again. And uh, Lord, I pray that by faith you would strengthen each person here for the task ahead of them this week. Lord, give them fresh courage and fresh joy to do whatever they need to do in front of them. Lord, this is uh, challenging, but it's your word and we believe it's useful. I pray in Jesus' name. If you believe, say amen. amen. This has been the Good News Neighborhood Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the song. I hope it's been helpful to you. We'll see you again soon. This is Good News.